the same way your gut feelings, the things that your gut is telling you, uh, the instincts that you have, you know, follow them. I always, as a younger person, question those instincts and question those and uh, and sometimes made choices outside of what my gut is telling me. So I would I would tell my younger self to just trust your gut, trust your instincts a little bit more uh, because it, it'll tend to work out. Welcome to the Drew Perlman Show. Think of this podcast as the antidote to the fear, the noise, and the talking heads in the news. The show features an entertaining blend of ancient wisdom, empowering ideas, and cutting-edge, healthy living science to optimize your health and your life. All right, so let's dive in and get started. Today's guest on the show is Kiran Krishnan. And Kiran is a research microbiologist and has been involved in the dietary supplement and nutrition market for the past 17 years. He comes from a strict research background, having spent several years with hands-on R&D in the fields of molecular medicine and microbiology at the University of Iowa. Most recently, Kiran is acting as the Chief Scientific Officer at Physicians Exclusive, LLC, and Microbiome Labs. He is currently involved in nine novel human clinical trials on probiotics and the human microbiome. Kiran, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Drew. Appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. Yeah, I was just telling Kieran, I feel like I know him. He, he's done so many amazing videos and presentations on the micro. I mean, we, we've got the best here when it comes to the microbiome. So I'm so excited to have you have you here today. And, uh, you know, Kieran, I just wanted to start with this. Um, where does your passion for the microbiome and this hidden microbial world and human health, where, do, where does this passion come from? Uh, you know, I, I think genetically, uh, or at least certainly from from my upbringing, I've always been uh, a big fan of science, right? My my parents are both scientists in, in a way. My mom is a uh, medical doctor, and you know she's been in the in the biological sciences her entire career. My dad uh, was an engineer, microelectronics engineer, um, very innovative thinker. He had over 200 U.S. patents in his name, mm-hmm. um, you know, so so really smart on the engineering math side. And so I think I got a little bit of both. And um, when I was uh, growing up, I always had this innate curiosity to understand how the world around me worked. I, I never wanted to take anything for granted in terms of how things work. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I, I grew up in India and Malaysia, and I moved to the U.S. when I was around the age of 14. And I remember when I moved here, you know, the microwave was fascinating to me because we never had such a thing in India or Malaysia. And I would always ask my friends, like, how does this thing work? You know, how is it that you put something in it, right, and you push a button in 30 seconds, it's hot? Um, nobody knew and nobody cared. You know, at least of my friends. And they're like, I don't know, you just put it in and push a button. But that's the kind of thing I needed to understand, right? I couldn't take just take it for granted that I'm using this thing every day and and I don't know how it works. So that curiosity, of course, drove me towards the sciences and and the background and the influence of my parents. Um, And when I was starting to choose where I wanted to study, it was either going to be quantum mechanics or microbiology. Hmm. Um, and I, and I do like to study quantum mechanics on the side, uh, a little bit just for fun, because what always fascinated me 
was the was the universe and the world that we can't see, which actually makes up for the vast majority of everything that exists, mm-hmm. is the stuff we can't see, realize or touch, you know, or at least know that we're touching, um, that controls and has a huge influence on everything that happens to us, right? We, your your average human walking down the street has a very narrow view and understanding of the world around them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because they really don't understand the stuff that they can't see. And they really don't understand the stuff that they don't they don't know are influencing them. And that was the part that really drove me. So uh, fortunately for the movie Outbreak, which is actually <laughs> kind of relevant nowadays. I don't know if you, if you remember that movie with Morgan Freeman and Dustin Hoffman. Yes, yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. That was uh, when I my freshman year, like first week of college, uh, that movie was playing in the dorms in like the common movie room. And I, I watched it. I watched it with fascination because I got super excited about this idea of working for CDC and research institutions and chasing down these viruses and all that. And um, so that got me to to want to look into microbiology. Um, and uh, you know, and, and and we see the evidence of the power of these this unseen microbial world, right? I mean, we have this massive high technology global economy and and structure and countries and cities one little virus which is not even a living thing can bring this world to its knees Mm. pretty quickly right um and it's not even a very deadly or scary virus to begin with right Right. there's much worse uh, out there that that is probably around the corner and, and has been you know that we've seen in the past and so it's so fascinating to me. You know, we 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 are megalomaniacal in our thinking, but really at the end of the day, we are minuscule compared to the power of these microbes. Absolutely. Right. And 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 ha- having being able to have some knowledge of that is, is really amazing. Yeah. And, and I and I do want to get back to that as far as, you know, what people can do to strengthen their microbiome in the face of covid. But also, as you you're indicating the, the next pathogen that, that likely comes down the pike mm-hmm. um, as well. But Karen, you know, I'm just curious to get your perspective. I know that there, you know, in, in, in when it comes to science and 20th century thinking, I mean, for, from the way I understand it, much of the 20th century science believed that, you know, for the most part, a healthy body was mostly sterile. Right. And, and, and every year it seemed now, now we know there's, you know, hundreds and tr- of trillions of microorganisms but where where do you see us right now where where are we are we sort of in the infancy of our understanding of the microbiome where do you see us right now at like this particular juncture of time you know yeah it's 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 interesting because we have done at this point almost more science on the microbiome than anything else and yet we understand it the least of a lot of things right so we are just at the tip of the iceberg um, there, there are things that are so mysterious and magical about the microbial world that it's hard for us to fathom because I don't think we've, we've discovered biological science, uh, at that level. Um, you know, nonetheless, we've studied the, the microbiome quite a bit. So just in the last five years, we've published, when I say we, I mean the scientific community in, as a collective, right? Uh, we've published over 50,000 papers Hmm. on the microbiome, right? Think about that. Five years, over 10,000 research studies are completed, written up, sent over for peer review and all that, and then published 
in a single year. That's a lot. That's a massive <laughs> scientific revolution, right? Mm. And despite all of that work, we're still at the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we have a really good understanding. There's some things we can feel very sure about uh, based on the work that already exists. But there are many things that we still don't understand how they work. So we're in the phase where we know that things work. We know that microbes influence this, that, and the other, and I'm sure we'll get into that. Uh, but we don't exactly know how, right, in many, in many cases. I'll give you one specific example of that, which actually you know, lends to the topic that we're going to discuss today, the gut-lung access. Right. The gut lung access is a really fascinating thing. That's a connection between the microbes in the gut and the microbes in the lungs. When you're when your lungs are exposed to a pathogen, let's say the flu virus, for example, you're, you're out, you breathe in the flu virus, the flu virus enters into your lungs and it starts trying to infect your lung epithelial cells or the lining cells of your lung. The first cells to detect the presence of the flu virus are the microbes that live in your lungs, not your, not your immune cells. It's the microbes that detected first. And then the microbes, once they detect the flu virus there, they will send a message to the microbes in your gut, alerting the microbes in your gut that an invading pathogen is there. Then, then the microbes in the gut send a message to your immune system to direct them towards the lungs. And when you think about that, right, and, and it makes sense logically, like, oh, okay, that's how it should work. But when you really think about it from a scientific perspective, how the hell does that happen, right? <laughs> how do the microbes in the lungs know how to talk to the microbes in the gut? And what is that form of communication? So we know that happens because you can measure the, you can measure that the, a response is occurring, but we don't exactly know how. Right? We don't exactly know what is the nature of the signal that the microbes from the lungs are sending to the microbes in the gut. So that's that's kind of where we are in, in the microbiome research world. We know, for example, that X, Y, and Z are happening. We know that when you make certain changes, you can influence X, Y, and Z, but we don't exactly know at the cellular level how some of those things are occurring. Mm. Right. So and, and then as we start to figure out how, we'll start to discover a whole layer of biological science that we didn't know existed. It's like immunology, you know, every almost six to 10 months, you discover a new type of immune cell that you didn't know existed. And now all of a sudden it adds this new layer of complexity onto how the immune system works. Hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating field to be in. Uh, and the most exciting thing about it to me is it provides so much hope that we have so much more capability to control disease than we thought we did, right? And that's mm -hmm. the most exciting part about all of it to me. So, so Kieran, I mean, when you talk about, I mean, we, we hear about the immune system, we, you know, we hear about it in the face of different threats and all this kind of thing. But I mean, from what it sounds like you're saying, I mean, you can't talk about the immune system without talking about the microbiome. I mean, yeah, there's the sense that they're separate, but as you're saying, they're not separate. They're not. They're one and the same, right? So, so if you think about it from this perspective, and, and hopefully your audience will, will appreciate this um, this elaboration on it. So, so the the role of the immune system, for the large part, is to protect us against microbes, 
right? Uh, to protect us against infectious microbes, to be specific, um, infectious viruses, infectious bacteria, infectious fungi, and so on. All the while, they are living and functioning completely surrounded by microbes, right? So the the big question always has been within the, within the study of immunology is how does their immune system tell the difference between a problematic or pathogenic microbe versus a non-pathogenic microbe, right? Because, and let me give you some numbers that'll really illustrate this problem. Hmm. Um, most of the microbes in your body, and there's you know over 40 trillion more than human cells that you have, uh, most of the microbes in your body will live in the mucosal layers. And, and the inside part of your body, the largest surface area in your body is the mucosal layer. You know, that we used to have this idea that the skin, the outer skin is the biggest organ or the largest surface area. It's not. The mucosal air, uh, layer on the inside is, is hundreds of times larger in surface area than your skin. Um, and so it's about 4,000 square feet of surface area folded up inside, meaning every part of your body on the inside is covered with the mucosal layer. So no matter how things enter your body, whether they're entering through the digestive tract, you swallow them, or through your nose, through your eyes, through your ears, through your urogenital tract, or even penetrating through the skin, they're going to enter into the mucus layer first. And the vast majority of microbes that live in our system live in the mucus layer, and our immune system functions heavily in the mucus layer as well, because that's the ground zero or the battle's ground for most things entering into the system. When you look at the distribution of microbes to immune cells in the mucus layer, it's a 200,000 to one ratio, right? So for every one immune cell that's there monitoring this that area, there are 200,000 microbes already present, right? So, so if one out of those 200,000 microbes are problematic or potentially infectious, the big question is, how does that immune cell in that region tell the difference between that one and the other 199,999 that are not infectious, right? Mm -hmm. Because the problems are much more severe if the immune system decides to attack all of the 200,000 organisms, right? That's when you actually get even more problems than when you get sick with an infectious virus or bacteria. So that tolerance that ability for the immune system to understand that the 199,999 are okay and they're going and it's going to work their immune system is going to work with those but that that one over there in that corner is the potential that it has to keep its eye on that kind of crosstalk and communication and understanding is an is the absolute critical fundamental aspect of the function of your immune system and so as you try to understand how is it that the immune system can distinguish that way, what you come to understand is that there's this really elaborate bi-directional cross-talking between the microbes that live in you and on you and the immune system. And they function as a singular unit. They have different, slightly different roles, which we'll elaborate on, but they function as a singular unit. Your, your immune system evolved to utilize your microbiome to protect the human body. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. You know, and Kieran, it seems like, you know, just, just related to this, I mean, 
we do seem to have, I think, I think you would agree with the statement that we have sort of this epidemic of immune system dysfunction yeah. in that so many of us have immune systems that might be, say, underreactive to certain viruses and things like that, but also overreactive to our own tissue, to food, to all these kind of things. What do you think, if, if you would agree with that statement, what do you think is driving this dysregulation where our immune systems are sort of a bit out of control? Yeah, absolutely. So our, mis our immune systems are misdirected, right? And they're not getting the proper signals to, to launch into the right phases of, of, of action when they need to. Um, so, and that's all 100% driven by dysfunctional microbiomes. So let's, let's, let's explain a little bit how the immune system is supposed to function from beginning to end when you're exposed to something, right? And, and, then, and then in each step that the immune system functions, I'll explain how the microbiome plays a role. Okay. And then what that'll do is bring clarity as to if you have a dysfunctional microbiome, where all things can go wrong during the immune response, right? So um, you're, let's say you're walking around and you get exposed to an infectious virus. Um, the virus comes into your lungs. Let's go, let's go with influenza uh, because we started with that earlier. Virus comes into your lungs, starts trying to infect your lung epithelial cells or the lining cells of your lung. So the virus, as, as many people now know, because people have gotten familiar with viruses, what the virus is trying to do is infect your cell with its DNA or RNA, which is a short message, a short genetic message. And in that DNA and RNA, what it's trying to do is use it to take over the cell's machinery and to take over the cell's replication machinery to make more virus, right? So that's the premise of how a virus works. It's not a living thing because it can't reproduce on its own. Um, it, it actually requires the reproductive machinery of our cells in order to make more copies of itself. So it's, it's, it attaches to the surface of the cell and it injects in its DNA or RNA. Now that cell is officially infected, right? So now you have an infection. Um, step one in immune response is the immune system has to be able to detect that that cell is infected. And there's two things that help the immune system detect that. And keep in mind that the immune system cannot observe every cell in your body every minute of every day, right? It's, that's virtually impossible. We don't have enough immune cells to do that. So the immune system is kind of like the police in a neighborhood. They can't be at every corner, every block, every minute of every day. They roam around, right? They patrol. So the immune system is patrolling. And just like the police that need to be called when something happens or there's an alarm that triggers them to move to a certain area of disruption, the immune system requires that activation and requires that signal to come to the site of infection because the likelihood that the immune cells are there at that moment when a cell gets infected is very low. The two big signals when a, when a cell is infected, one is the cell itself starts to scream a little bit, right? The cell itself, the moment it gets infected, we have some feedback mechanisms within our own cells where as soon as they get infected, they start shooting out signals to do two things. One is to try to neutralize the virus that is infecting it, to stop the virus from being able to replicate within the cell. Number two, the, also to try to signal to the local area that, hey, I'm infected with something. Uh, that's one signal. 
the second signal is from the microbes in that region. The microbes, the bacteria in, in particular, will sense a change in that microenvironment because every square inch of your inside of your body and outside of your body is covered with microbes. So you can be sure that when a cell is infected, there's a microbe sitting around or on that cell. That microbe, if it's the right microbe, will pick up and understand that that cell is being infected. And then the microbe will amplify the signal from the cell. And the microbe itself will send out more signals to recruit the immune system to that site of action, right? So that is step one in detecting the presence of an infection. Now, here's the difference between people. There are some people can get exposed to something, like you take two people, they both got exposed to the same thing. Mm -hmm. One person shows almost no symptoms, maybe some very light symptoms, and then the, their body handles and clears the infection. The other person shows like no symptoms for a few days and then all of a sudden is on death's doorstep, right? It's like they got hit by a truck, they're out, they're mm -hmm. sleeping, they've got high fever, body aches and all of that. That response time is dictated by how quickly your cells can signal and your microbiome can signal to the immune system to get to that region, right? And the reason why time is of such essence there is because if you give the virus 12 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, it's gonna make more and more and more copies of itself. And each copy that comes out of that cell goes and infects another cell and makes hundreds of copies of itself comes out, goes and infect 100 other cells. So, the, so the, the viral load can increase very dramatically in a relatively short amount of time. So if your immune system can be properly re recruited to that site of action within a five-hour period or six-hour period versus a, versus a 12 to 14-hour period, the damage that the virus has done is going to be considerably different. Right? Mm -hmm. It's no different than if a house starts to catch on fire. If there's a small fire in one room of the house, if we can get the firefighters there within five, ten minutes, the damage will be completely limiting and you can easily repair that one area that got caught in fire and move on. Versus mm -hmm. if it takes them an hour to get there, half the house would probably be burned down. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what's happening at the cellular level. Right. So how how soon can your immune cells be recruited to that area? And that's heavily dependent on the having the right microbes in that area that will send the signals to recruit the immune cells to that area. Now, which immune cells get there? Well, our immune system has two different components to it. Component number one is called the innate immune system. And then component number two is called the adaptive immune system. The innate immune system is the one that gets there faster. Right? They are constantly circulating around the dendritic cells, the macrophages, the natural killer cells, the isonophilic cells. All of these cells are continuously patrolling around your body, looking for things that it has to take care of. And then it can get to the site of action much faster than your adaptive cells. The problem with the innate cells is they're pretty nonspecific in their targeting of, of pathogens. Right, So they will come to a region and they will know that something's wrong in that region. They don't know exactly what, and they don't know exactly who is causing the problem. So what they do is they just come to the region where there's an there's a, there's a issue, and then they just carpet bomb that region, 
Mm. Right. And with the hope that during the carpet bombing, with all of the tools that they have, the complement system and lysozymes and all of these bactericins and so on, all these antiviral compounds and all that your immune system has, what the hope is that in that carpet bombing, yes, it's going to kill some of your own tissue, it's going to damage some of your own cells, but it's also going to take care of whatever is infecting the cells in that region. Right. Now, if that kind of if that part of the immune system is allowed to continue to go on, then what's going to happen is overall you're going to get more damage to your own cells than you are controlling the pathogen itself, right? So that is the heavy inflammatory uh, damaging part of the immune response, the innate immune response, and that part is very inflammation driven. The innate immune cells use inflammation not only to try to control the the spread of that of the of the virus or bacteria that's infecting you, but then they also use inflammation to recruit more immune cells to that area. But all of everything they do in that region is damaging your tissue heavily, and so that part of the system is only supposed to occur for about two to three days, and then your immune system is supposed to shuttle to the adaptive response where specific T cells or specific B cells or both are recruited to come that can take care of the specific virus or bacteria that's causing infection. And they do so through antibodies, for example, so that they can target just the infectious agent and there's no more damage to your existing tissue, right? Mm. So that's the phases of the immune response. Something infects there, there has to be a signal to recruit the innate immune cells. The innate immune cells come and start carpet bombing that area. But within a couple of days, the adaptive immune system is supposed to get activated, come to the area, and then the cells that are specifically in charge of taking care of that type of virus or that type of bacteria will go into action and all of the inflammatory damaging carpet bombing will stop, right? So then that way the system can repair itself while controlling that specific pathogen without causing any more damage. Now, how we feel is um, when when the detection of infection is happening, we feel nothing. We're asymptomatic, right? That's single cells or double or two or three or four cells being infected at once. The immune system, uh, the, the cells themselves sending out a signal, then the microbiome sending out a signal, and then the innate immune actors show up. Now, once the innate immune actors show up and start the carpet bombing, that's when we start to feel sick, right? That's when we get the fever. That's when we get the body aches. That's when we get the lethargy, um, you know, the, the inflammation, all of the things that we, we symptomatically call illness, right? So prior to that, there is a war going on. The, the, the infectious agent is infecting you. Your cells are dying. Your microbiome is sending out signals to activate your immune system, but you don't feel any of that, right? You start to feel it once the immune system, the innate immune system starts acting. Now, symptoms go away, your fever goes away, all of that, once the adaptive immune system takes over, right? So once the carpet bombing is stopped, that's when your symptoms start to go away, your fever comes down, body aches go away, you get more energy again, but it doesn't mean that the virus or bacteria is gone, right? It just means that the, there's been a handoff made to your adaptive immune system. And now your adaptive immune system is neutralizing the, the infectious agent with antibodies and other tricks that they have without causing all the damage, the inflammation, and the fever, 
right? So that's immunology 101. That's basically how your immune system works. Now, every single one of those steps requires a signal from the microbiome, right? Uh, and so reviewing it, the first step, detection of infection requires a signal from the microbiome. So if you don't have the right microbes and you're not getting the signal, then it takes your immune system much longer to respond to begin with, and you get more damage in your system than you should. And when the immune system finally responds, it may take seven days, 10 days, 12 days, the, the amount of virus and the amount of new uh, pathogenic or harmful microbes is so large that your immune system, the carpet bombing part of the immune system goes haywire. And actually, instead of small carpet bombs, it does a big atom bomb in your system. And that causes you to go into the whole cytokine storm and all that, mm -hmm. right? So that's when people, so people would go from being asymptomatic, asymptomatic, asymptomatic with COVID for seven, 10 days. And then all of a sudden they are on death's doorstep, right? Overnight they get 103 fever, they're lethargic, they can't breathe, you know, all of those things like happens overnight. And that's because the immune system was not detecting, was not being recruited to the site of infection. So the virus came in, it could grow and, and, uh, and replicate and infect more and more cells. Then when the innate immune system finally did respond and did find the infection, the infection was so much bigger that the, that the, that the response by the innate immune system was much more dramatic, mm. right? And those individuals felt really ill, right? You know, Kieran, I just wanted to ask you, you know, I know you've, you've delved into the most current research that there is. Have you noticed any commonalities between people who have gotten into trouble with COVID in terms of similarities they've had in their microbiome or some some things that have stood out to you that you've noticed in the research? Yeah, yeah. There's a number of clear publications on this. So um, there are at least five published studies showing that certain characteristics of your microbiome are predictive of how severe of an infection you're going to have. And it's predictive of hospitalization and mortality as well with COVID, right? And so some of those features are, uh, number one, the diversity in your microbiome. If, if you're exposed to COVID and you have low diversity in the microbiome, your risk for having a bad outcome or a difficult uh, uh, infectious period is much higher. Your risk for hospitalization and your risk for mortality is much higher. Um, the presence of certain keystone species like Fecalum bacteria prosnitsi, uh, Bifidobacterium uh, adolescentis, Bifidobacterium longum, the presence of those organisms are also predictive, meaning if you have high levels of those protective organisms, you will have you will likely have a much milder case of the infection. But if you have low levels of those organisms, the, the risk of hospitalization and even mortality is much higher. So it's it's clear that a disrupted microbiome is a major factor in how your body responds to this virus. It's even uh, suspected that uh, that those with the most disrupted microbiomes are the ones that are most susceptible to long-haul syndrome issues as well, right? So that's another aspect of it. It's like, you know, two people can get the same virus and one person can feel pretty sick and clear it within seven days. And then the other person may clear some of it, but will have lingering sy symptoms for the next six months, right? The, the difference seems to be in those two individuals the differences in their microbiome, mm. you know, and that that's that's really important to note. Um, 
and 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 at the end of the day, here's here's a really interesting connection, right? Because everybody heard about these things called comorbidities or underlying risk factors, right? Mm-hmm. That that increase your risk for having a really bad outcome with COVID. Uh, things like diabetes or uh, obesity or high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease in general, those types of things. If you had those conditions, your risk of dying from COVID was seven to 10 times higher than somebody the same age that did not have those conditions, right? Then the big question becomes, that's a huge difference. Then the big question is, why is it that different? Like, why is it that somebody with diabetes is 10 times more likely to die from COVID if they get infected than somebody of the same age without diabetes. And the reason, which is super interesting, is that that person with diabetes in part has diabetes because of a disrupted microbiome, right? There's a number of studies from the American Diabetic Association even that shows that when your microbiome is disrupted in a certain way, especially losing diversity, losing these protective keystone strains like Fecalum bacteria prosnitsi or Acromantia mucinophila. If you have low levels of those organisms and low diversity, your likelihood for developing diabetes is way higher. Those same dysfunctions uh, uh, on the microbiome happen to be the dysfunctions that make you more susceptible to a severe outcome with COVID, right? So it's not the diabetes It's not the lack of glucose control that is making that person 10 times more likely to succumb to to this infectious virus. It is the microbiome dysfunction that that gave them the risk for diabetes. That same microbiome dysfunction is what's giving them a poor outcome with COVID. Mm. Well, Kieran, that really leads to sort of the, the next question, which is, you know, since so many so many of us do have dysfunctional microbiomes, you know, in this sort of sterilized age of excessive cleanliness and hand sanitizer everywhere and living indoors and all this sort of stuff, how how can the average person rewild their gut and you know get more of these as you as you call them keystone strains and more diversity? How do how does the average person do this? You know the 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 good news is you can. Right. The good news is that there's so many ways of doing it. And, and I would always suggest people do multiple things. Right. Um, because it's an ecosystem. It's a complex ecosystem. The more positive influence you can have on that ecosystem, the better off it's going to be. It's just like if you have a garden in the backyard and you and, and it, it's it's got multiple plants. Right. If for some reason something's gone wrong, the garden's overrun with weeds you know, and you've, you've got your, your plants that you intend to be there aren't growing the way they should, you're not going to just do one thing. You're going to go in there and tend to it in a number of different ways, right? Um, and so that's the same with the microbiome. So let's talk about what you can do. And I like like the term you use, rewild. We actually use that quite a bit in, in some of the research and, and product development that we're doing right now. Um, step number one is feeding the microbiome uh, in the right way, right? In general, when you look at all the studies, the microbiome thrives with the more diversity of foods that you give it, right? So the higher diversity in your diet, the higher diversity you're gonna have in your microbiome. So that's that's a simple thing. People should just look at adding new types of foods every single week, One, just one new type 
for one meal and then maintain that as part of some way, somewhat of your regular diet. And then, you know, each week, each every two weeks, maybe add something new to it. So, so you increase diversity within your diet. The second part is fasting. Uh, fasting actually, you know, which is counterintuitive, but it actually increases the diversity of the microbiome because there are a number of organisms in your microbiome that do not proliferate when food is continuously being presented to, presented to the system. They can only uh, proliferate when there's no food actively coming in. And so it's very important that you give your gut periods of fasting throughout the day. I do the 16, you know, hour, 16, eight fasting. So at least 14 to 16 hours a day, a lot of it overnight. I'm not eating, I'm, not, I'm fasting and allowing my microbiome to kind of thrive, all the different organisms to thrive. Getting out in nature cannot be overstated. And I'm talking about natural environments, right? So going for a walk um, down a city block is not necessarily gonna do the trick. Um, getting out into natural untouched environments like the beach uh, or you know, going out for a wood, uh, going out for a hike in the woods or in mountains, de desert, whatever is near you as natural uh, environment, getting out there as much as you can makes a big difference. Just walking out there makes a big difference. You don't have to get down and roll around in the dirt. Just being in that environment, I'll give you an example with the ocean, right? So we, many, many, many people feel the ocean is therapeutic, right? And of course, there's the sound and maybe some of the salt that you breathe in and all that. But what people don't realize is the ocean is a major source of microbes that cover uh, the land. Right. So the, the ocean water is not sterile, even though it's high salt environment. There's lots and lots of bacteria and viruses in the ocean. In fact, I think there's four times more bacteria uh, virus than there is bacteria in ocean water. But but nonetheless, what happens is uh, as the oceans, uh, as the waves hit the, um, the shore, um, there is this ripple that's that's created at the very top surface of the water and, and the very top millimeter of water aerosolizes. Right, that's like that ocean spray, but it's but it's even smaller than ocean spray because you can't really see it. And for each little microscopic droplet of ocean water that aerosolizes, you've got dozens upon dozens of bacteria and viruses in it. And so those bacteria and virus actually cover the entire ecosystem anywhere around the ocean. And in fact, those microbes have been found up to three to 4,000 miles away from the ocean. Wow. Right? So they get carried that far. So you're actually getting inoculated all the time, especially if you live anywhere near a coast, by microbes from the ocean. And many of those can be very therapeutic and beneficial to the diversity of your system. Actually, just this is a side, an aside, but a super interesting nerd fact. Mm. <laughs> those same microbes are affecting the weather, right? So clouds, when you look at clouds in the sky, this is super fascinating to me. This is why I love microbiology and, and the study of these small microscopic things. They just look like, you know, these beautiful puffy, like pristine things, right? White, puffy, pristine things. Clouds are actually giant clouds of microbes hmm. because what's happening is the microbes from the ocean water that aerosolizes are, are getting updrafted into the sky. And then, and then the, the condensation of, of moisture in the air, in the upper atmosphere, is actually 
uh, condensing on the microbes themselves. And that's how you form clouds, right? Without something for the moisture in the air to condense upon, you couldn't form a cloud. So clouds are actually giant gatherings of microbes. <laughs> wow. And, and which is interesting. And depending on the microbes that predominate the clouds, it changes how those clouds impact weather, mm. right? So mm. the microbes from the ocean actually will determine the weather in the region and globally as well, right? The temperature, the amount of rain, all of these things. And so as we pollute our oceans more and we change the microbial composition of the ocean, those microbes in the ocean are now getting aerosolized up. They're actually changing the weather system. Mm. And it's all the microbes, right? So it's so that's just, and the reason I bring up that crazy nerd uh, tangent is because I'm, I'm a huge nerd and I love this stuff and maybe this might tickle some people, uh, but also just to get people to understand how important the outside ecosystem is, right? In terms of its influence on your health, your wellness, your weather, everything that's happening around you. So I cannot overstate how important it is to get outside into nature. Um, and, and I encourage people to make it prescriptive to them, right? Meaning don't just go, oh yeah, I need to get out more. No, you should schedule in three times a week, 30 minutes a day, uh, 30 minutes at a time. I'm gonna go walk out and stand in those woods or I'm gonna go walk out and stand down that trail. Um, you know, Just make it prescriptive like you would do anything else because it is substantially influential on your system, right? So that's the getting out of nature part. Then the other parts of it is the right probiotics. So we do studies with the spore-based probiotic Megaspore. What we've been able to show in our published studies that taking the right spore-based probiotic can actually enhance the growth of a number of other organisms within your system. We saw about a 25 to 30% increase in diversity by taking the spores within three weeks. Right. Mm. So and that's because these organisms are designed to go into your gut and not designed by us. These are designed by nature. Right. We can't engineer organisms to do that. These are organisms that existed in nature for thousands of years. We're just smart enough to figure out we need to study them and see what they do. And once we figured out what they do, then we put them into a product. So, so Kieran, you you found that the spore based delivery system or whatever you want to call it, the spore-based is, is much more effective. Far more effective in terms of influencing the rest of your microbiome than any other category of probiotic bacteria. Um, and, and it makes complete evolutionary sense as well because the spore-based organisms are ubiquitous in nature, right? So you find them all over in the natural environment. So our ancestors, for the vast majority of human existence, were consuming these organisms inadvertently because they ate dirt, right? They ate off the land, they didn't sterilize their food, they didn't sterilize their environment. So they got tremendous exposure to these spore-based organisms. And the spore-based organisms are interesting because they're the few organisms that can actually survive through our gastric system and get to the intestines, get to the site of action where, they, where they're actually in a viable state. Vast majority of bacteria you consume, including most probiotics, will simply die through your stomach, right? Going through your stomach, your stomach is a gastric barrier for that reason. Uh, one That's one of the main reasons is to kill bacteria that's coming in to protect the system. And so the microbes, the spore-based microbes make it through. Once they're in the gut, 
they do something called quorum sensing, where they can read the microbial environment, they can study the chemical signatures of the different organisms in the area, and then they will start to work to suppress any pathogenic or overgrown organisms, and we've published studies on that. Uh, and then they will enhance the growth of beneficial organisms that are really low levels, right? So they, they are really the orchestrators of the microbiome. And we don't have a good way of doing that ourselves in our own system. So we've outsourced the management of the population of the microbiome to microbes that we are supposed to encounter on a regular basis, right? So that's why the spores are so important because through the course of evolution, we've developed this amazing symbiotic relationship where we give them a home, which is our gut, and then it's their job to maintain and clean up the home. So we have that beautiful relationship with them. And to us, that's why we honed in on using spore-based bacteria as probiotics, because that was a huge missing piece in the whole world of probiotics. Mm, fascinating. And, and how about, are you, are you um, a proponent of fermented foods? Do you eat fermented foods? How does that uh, factor in? Important and healthy foods. Here's a misconception of them, though. Fermented foods are not a source of probiotic bacteria. Right? We think of the microbes that did the fermentation as probiotic bacteria, but they are not because they will die when you consume the food. Right, They will die going through the gastric system. The benefits of the fermented food comes from the fermentation part of it, where the microbes were breaking down the sauerkraut or the dairy in the case of kefir or whatever it may be, or just simple sugars and so on. And then in that digestion process, which is the fermentation process, they produce all of these byproducts, these amino acids, these peptides, these uh, immunological compounds, you know, omega fatty acids. They produce all of these really, really important nutrients that act on our system in a very positive way. So the, so the benefits of fermentation food, food for fermented food, sorry, come from the ferment itself. And they are a, a different category of therapeutics to the gut microbiome. So if you took a true probiotic, one that has been studied to show that it survives, it has major influence on your microbiome, it does a number of positive things, and you added fermented foods, then you're really covering the spectrum of all the types of nutrients that your gut microbiome needs in order to proliferate and stay healthy. Mm, that's great. That's great. All right. I know we're getting to the end here. Just a few final questions, Kieran. You know, outside of the microbiome, what just the, what are a few of your daily practices, rituals that you would say make you feel the most alive? Yeah, um, I have a number of them that I love. I mean, I uh, I love cycling. Right. So that's I, I was a competitive cyclist uh, for some time uh, and I do it quite a bit recreationally. Um, I, I love that concept of out there riding in nature, smelling the air, feeling the wind um, and being relatively grounded. Because when you, when you're on a bike on the road, you see things and you're, you're realizing things that you don't see when you're in a car or vehicle and so on on the very same road, right? So I like that groundedness that I get, the exertion, the exertion that's required to propel yourself, uh, and then that closeness with nature because you're out there, you're open, and you're traveling relatively long distances in nature. I also like challenging myself physically on the bike, and that's why I used to compete because um, it, it's this mental challenge, right? Because at some point 
in a cycling race, for example, a five hour, six hour race, your body is done, but your body can continue if your mind overcomes it, right? Mm-hmm. And so it becomes that internal mind battle. And I, I love doing that. To me, that really makes me feel alive because that to me is 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 a big part of human nature, right? We We've as a species persisted through a lot of really difficult things to exist today. And a big part of that persistence is that mind battle, right? That not giving up, that going beyond your your actual physical limits. And so I love that test during those times. Uh, and so cycling is one of the big things. I'm also, you know, really good at relaxing. I've, <laughs> I've honed in a way of just being able to forget things and just sit down and either watch something dumb on TV uh, or, you know, go to the spa and get a massage. I think that kind of downtime and that kind of escape is so important for people. Uh, for me, certainly it is, you know. Um, and and then the other part to me is uh, service. Mm-hmm. Um, I find a lot, uh, I get a lot of benefit from doing things for other people, right? So whether it's, um, you know, simple things like making donations, uh, you know, donating our goods or, or money or helping or volunteering uh, or even just friends or family members doing something for them. You know, that kind of thing to me is, is one of the the epitome of human connection. Right. Because we survived through the course of evolution and moved up the evolutionary ladder in part because of our ability to form communities and cooperate and support one another, right? So that's embedded in our DNA. And in fact, our microbes uh, push us to do that. There are microbes Mm -hmm. in your gut that actually push you to be more altruistic and support and help your fellow human uh, because that's good for them as well because the more we interact with other humans, the more they can spread. So that to me is a really, really important part as well. And uh, those are the kind of the three main categories of things that I really, you know, really drives me. Mm, that's wonderful. And I think you're the first person on the show that just said, you know, I'm really good at relaxing. <laughs> that's just, that's wonderful. You, um, you have to hone that in, you know, because it's so hard for people to disconnect and, you know, turn things off. And uh, you have to, you just have to at some point in, in your day, in your week. It's so important. Absolutely. Well, my final question, um, Karen, if if you had the opportunity to travel back in time, say 40 years or so, what words of wisdom would your current self share with your younger self? Ah, wow. Um, (laughs) I love that. Uh, Let's see. I would probably... I would probably instruct my younger self to do fewer things that are harmful to my microbiome uh, than I had done throughout my 20s and early 30s, right? Uh, There are a lot of fun things that you can do that are absolutely disruptive to your microbiome. Um, But at the end of the day, I think, you know, what I what I would instruct my my younger self is really to follow your instincts, uh, because so far you know in I'm I'm 45 now and uh, having followed my instincts on things that quote unquote gut feeling about things has has really been uh, the right move for me in many ways right both personally professionally and so on um, and there's and there's a aspect to that that is biological and biochemical because um, your microbes 
actually, and I hate having to bring it always back to the microbes, um, can sense things that we can't sense yet. And that is another one of those areas I talked about earlier, right? There's many things that we know happens, but we don't know how. Uh, for example, if I'm meeting somebody and my microbes sense that they are microbial, from a microbial standpoint, compatible, my microbes in my gut will actually cause the release of pheromones to make me more attractive to that person. Mm -hmm. And those kind of things are absolutely just mind blowing to me. And so yeah. the same way your gut feelings, the things that your gut is telling you, uh, the instincts that you have, you know, follow them. I always, as a younger person, question those instincts and question those and uh, and sometimes made choices outside of what my gut is telling me. So I would I would tell my younger self to just trust your gut, trust your instincts a little bit more uh, because it, it, it'll tend to work out. Beautiful, beautiful. And and where can people go that want to learn more about you and all your work? Where, where should they go to find you? Um, so yeah, come, you know, find me on social media. I think on Instagram, my handle is Kieran Biome. So K-I-R-O-K-I-R-A-N-B-I-O-M-E. Uh, I try to engage with people as much as I can uh, on social media. I know people have lots of questions about this stuff and and it's also impactful. And so even though it takes a crazy amount of time. I do try to engage with people as much as I can. Uh, same thing on Facebook. You can find me at Kieran Krishnan. Uh, and then also come to our website at microbiomelabs.com. Uh, that's labs with an S and we have lots of resources there. And finally, we are actually launching a, um, a blog called Biome Hackers, B-I-O-M-E-H-A-C-K-E-R-S. Uh, and the whole idea behind Biome Hackers is being able to provide a uh, really, really good objective resource on everything on the microbiome, you know, so people can really go there, understand the microbiome, read articles, listen to view, uh, videos and all that. So um, check out Biome Hackers in, in sometime in, in uh, March uh, of this year. Great, great. We'll link up. Kieran, thank you so much. This was a great pleasure. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Drew. Thank you for listening to The Drew Perlman Show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. In the words of Mark Twain, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the things you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, and catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, discover, and stay well, everyone.